This episode of Beach Weekly contains themes of violence, abuse, and rape that may be alarming to some listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. This is Beach Weekly. You're listening to Season 11, Episode 13 of Beach Weekly, a podcast created and produced by Long Beach State's student-run newspaper, The Daily 49er. It's Monday, November 13th, and we're here with you on your walk to class, giving you the news you need to start your week. I'm your host, Leigh Madrigal. Keep listening for a special episode focusing on the Israel-Hamas war, its history, and its potential outcome. Today we are joined by Hayalea Safran, the executive director of Beach Hillel, the student-run organization for Jewish life on Long Beach State campus. She's here to explain what there is to know about the Israel-Hamas war, how it began in the first place, and where the war will possibly end up. Good morning, Hialeah. We're so thankful to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, The two groups involved in the war, Israel and Hamas, who are they exactly? So there is a country that exists called Israel. Um, It is a nation state. It is the ancestral home of the Jewish people. And it was established as an autonomous state, like many other countries at the time, were established in 1948. Hamas is the de facto government of the Gaza Strip. It's also a terrorist organization. Where does this conflict stem from originally? This is one of the biggest questions that people ask me, like, when does this story start, right? Because to me, October 7th was a life-changing day. Like Mm -hmm. for the Jewish people, nothing will ever be the same again after October 7th, 2023. But obviously history doesn't start on October 7th, 2023. It starts long before then. And you will hear people tell you that it starts, you know, in 2005 when Israel pulled out of Gaza and gave the land to the Palestinians to form a country, or some people will tell you it started in 1967 or in 1948 when Israel was established, or it could start in the biblical times when God promised the land of Israel to the Jewish people. So it really depends where you want to jump in to how does this conflict begin. Um, But I think it's suffice to say that um, Zionism, which is the Jewish people's desire for a homeland in their ancestral home, was a movement that started in the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, And it was born out of a 2,000-year desire for the Jewish people to have autonomy over their own destiny. And so we have the development of political Zionism and religious Zionism and all of this kind of stuff to make a homeland for the Jewish people in their ancestral home. So I would start, I, I would at least start in that, you know, where that is. Okay, so the actual physical land where Palestine and Israel are, what's the significance of that? Because it's very important religiously and territory-wise. So what's the importance of that land specifically? So if you want to look at it from a religious perspective, Israel is the holy land for the Jewish people. Is There's no comparison of any land to it for a Jew. Anybody who's read the Bible knows that Jewish history begins in the land of Israel, 
um, all the way from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and, you know, coming back from slavery in Egypt and developing the kingdoms of Israel, King David and King Solomon. I mean, the Jews have a very long history in Israel. If you look at archaeological evidence and any kind of antiquities, I mean, you see a long history of the Jewish people being in that land. And it is just, I can't overstate the religious significance of that land to the Jewish people. I mean, there's just all of our holidays that we celebrate today are connected to the land of Israel, to the actual like land itself. We were, we were uh, people who were connected directly to the land. So our major holidays like Passover and Sukkot, Shavuot are all related to the harvest, right, of that piece of land. So this, I, I can't overstate the religious significance of Israel to us. Um, it, and to the Palestinians, um, you know, Jerusalem is considered their third holiest city. The Temple Mount is considered one of their holy sites um, as Muslims. And uh, I don't want to, you know, take away from the religious significance that that is for them. And obviously Christians find a lot of holiness in the land of Israel, considering that Jesus was from Israel, born and and died and and resurrected, you know, in the land. So there's no place on earth that is more uh, religiously significant to so many people as the land of Israel. Yeah. So would religious significance play a big role in why that area was chosen in particular to create Israel? Like, why was the Holy Land chosen for Israel? Was it anything else? Were any other places considered? Actually, there were uh, very interesting ideas of picking some other land that the Jews could somehow settle in and build a country there. I mean, Uganda was brought up as a suggestion, but... They were never serious suggestions. I mean, the Jews always belonged in the land of Israel. It was always going to be the land of Israel. And, you know, if you open up a Jewish prayer book, every prayer is about returning to the land of Zion, to Jerusalem, to Israel. So that's why, I mean, there was never going to be a question of where the Jews were going to end up. It was always going to be Israel. And the interesting thing is, is that you had Jews scattered all over the world for 2,000 years. You had Jews in the Middle East and North Africa. You had Ethiopian Jews. One of the things that all the Jews had in common, no matter where they lived, is they always prayed towards Jerusalem, and every prayer was about returning to Jerusalem and to the land of Israel. And so this is so culturally significant to the Jews that you can't really, I mean, taking another piece of land and, you know, I don't know, maybe carve out, you know, a piece of California or a piece of upstate New York or whatever. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to a Jew. Our, we're connected to that land indefinitely. Could you say anything about the creation of Palestinian territories? In 1947, uh, it, this is going to kind of have to go back a little bit. Okay. There were always Jews and Arabs living on the land in Israel. At the time, it was the British Mandate, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and the, before then, it was the Turkish Ottoman Empire controlled the land. There never really was a country called Palestine that had an autonomous government. There was no, it didn't, that didn't exist. It went from Ottoman Empire rule to British mandate. And so when it became untenable for the British to remain the colonizers of that land, they turned to the UN and said, like, you need to figure out a solution here. We have Arabs, we have Jews. How are we going to like, what are we going to do here? We need to establish a land for two people who both find this land extremely significant, extremely important, and are not willing to leave. I mean, this is their home, right? Both both sides, it's their home. And so the, what the UN decided in 1947 was called the UN Partition Plan. And they took that land, basically, of the British mandate, and they divided it. And they were going to make, they wanted to establish a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. 
the Jews accepted it, even though it was much less, significantly less of the land than the, than they wanted, but they were just happy to have a home and they were desperate for it at the time. And so they accepted it. And the Palestinians, unfortunately, decided not to accept it. And all the Arab countries around Israel at the time declared war on Israel. And that was the War of Independence. The Palestinians called it the Nakba. Um, the Jews called the War of Independence. And that was the first war that was fought between the Arab countries all around, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, they all, Iraq. They all attacked Israel. And Israel was victorious in that war. And so that created this issue we have today of the Palestinian territories, because what do you do now? Right. So for 19 years, from 1948 to 1967, Jordan, the country of Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan ruled over the West Bank, what we call the West Bank today. Egypt had control over the Gaza Strip. Then they fought another war. Again, Israel was attacked in 1967 and fought another war with the Arab neighbors. Again, in 1973, the famous Yom Kippur War, which was 50 years ago, actually, this last month, um, where Israel was attacked again by all of its Arab neighbors. And so we have this situation where the Palestinians, there's kind of three areas that the Palestinians live in. We have Palestinians in the West Bank. We have Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And we have many Palestinians living within Israel, who are Israeli citizens, who have equal rights, who vote, who are nor regular participants in everyday life in Israel. So trying to understand how to reconcile all these different things, there's a lot of nuance. Each place is different. Talking about the West Bank is very different than talking about the Gaza Strip and what's going on there, which is very different than what's going on for Israeli Arabs or Palestinian Israelis living within Israel. Uh, moving on to current conflicts. What is the current state of the Israel-Hamas war now? So on October 6th, okay, there was a ceasefire in place because in 2005, Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip. They removed 8,000 Jews who were living in the Gaza Strip. They had communities, synagogues, schools, businesses. Israel forcibly removed 8,000 Jews from living in the Gaza Strip so that they could give Gaza to the Palestinians to establish a country for themselves. And what happened since 2005 is that Hamas took over and Hamas has basically used the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip as a tool to fight a war against Israel and the Jewish people. On October 7th, and I'm going to get very emotional right now okay. because this is the darkest day in Jewish history since the Holocaust, okay? 1,400 Israelis were slaughtered. And again, every single thing was recorded by Hamas themselves. They filmed themselves doing this. And how dare, how dare the world act like Israel has to prove something? Watch it with your own eyes. Watch them come into people's homes and tie up parents and children and poke out parents' eyeballs in front of their kids and then cut off children's arms and legs in front of their parents and then burn them. How dare the world do this? And people, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional, but students on our campus, two days, two days after that massacre happened, put out a flyer with imagery of paragliders coming into a crowd, which was used on that Saturday on October 7th to come into a music festival like Coachella, where they slaughtered and raped close to 300 young Jewish people at a party. These were not soldiers. These were not people standing guard. They were at a music festival. And I feel 
terrible for the Palestinians living in Gaza because they don't deserve this. They don't deserve a government that does this. They're innocent, a lot of them. The kids and the, they didn't ask for this. I, I hate when people watch violence, but I'm begging people to watch the footage. And this is the most painful part. They have 240 hostages, babies, children, teenagers, old women, women who I don't know what's happening to them. There's a video you can see of a girl coming, being pulled out by her hair. Her pants are soaked in blood because she was raped so badly. Okay, a Jewish girl. Where is she now? No one knows. No one's telling us. The Red Cross hasn't seen her. Everyone on college campuses across this country are screaming at Israel and telling them to cease fire. Where are our hostages? Where are 240 hostages? Why isn't anyone saying anything about that? Hamas could end this war today. Give us back our hostages and stop throwing rockets at us. Israel will happily stop. But Israel has no choice. They have to end Hamas. Hamas is a cancer. It is a cancer for the Palestinians. Anyone who cares about Palestinian lives will say we need to end Hamas. This is their it's their fault. They made a choice on October 7th. They chose to do that. Every single death that happens now in Gaza. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy what's going on. Babies and families being forced out of their homes, being forced to flee to South Gaza. It's not nobody wants that to happen. Nobody. Who wants to see that? It's a terrible to human tragedy. But whose fault is this? This is the fault of the murderers who are using these civilians as, as human shields to block themselves from being killed. Do you want to know something? I'm sorry I'm ranting, but I, I, I'm sorry. But the world is screaming at Israel about humanitarian aid. Do you know that in Gaza right now, there's fuel, there's food, there's water? Do you know where it's going? It goes to the fighters, the Hamas fighters. It doesn't go to the people. And you know how I know that? Because the Hamas leadership says it outright. They're not hiding. The only ones who aren't listening are American and Western college students who are refusing to hear what the Hamas leadership is saying themselves. How, how, are, how are the Jewish people supposed to sit back right now and say, oh, yes, please cease fire? No, I reject that idea. No. I reject the idea. I will agree to a ceasefire when Hamas stops what they're doing. Stop killing innocent people. Stop using Palestinians as human shields. Stop stealing all their money and, and resources and give us back our hostages. Then I agree to a ceasefire. Sorry. What's the future of the war looking like as of right now? Like, where might it end up? Israel has no choice. It needs to be successful in this war. There is one Jewish country in the world. That is it. There's one place in the world that I can go that will protect me, my children. That is a place that is a homeland for our people. They have no choice, but they have to be successful in this campaign. What everyone in the Israeli government and what everyone in Israel and what all Jews around the world are hoping and praying for is that Hamas could lay down their arms, return the captives, give control to the Palestinians and let them form a government, maybe with help from the United States, from the UN, from the EU, I don't care, from other Arab countries, whoever it is that can help them establish a functional government that is not run by genocidal terrorists. And let's live side by side. There is no reason that there can't be Palestinian states next to Jewish state. There's no reason. It, it should be an easy thing to do. But when you look around the Middle East, unfortunately, it's very difficult to find a functional democracy in the Middle East outside of Israel. 
And so I don't know. I honestly, if you would have interviewed me on October 6th, the day before the massacre, I would have had a very different answer because I was the biggest advocate for a two-state solution. We need a strong, good, comfortable homeland for the Palestinians. They deserve it. And we need a good, comfortable, strong Israel for the Jewish people. I was the biggest advocate. I spent most of my career fighting for that. I took students from this campus to Israel and to the Palestinian territories to meet with people, to understand the conflict. We were just there in June, 20 students from Cal State Long Beach, Jewish and non-Jewish. And we got to see a lot of the country. We went to the border of Gaza. We went to a kibbutz at the time called Kfar Aza. And we spent the day there. Kfar Aza was massacred. There's 18 hostages from Kfar Aza in Gaza right now. There were 65 people killed in that kibbutz and hundreds injured. I don't, I don't know anymore. I, I've lost my ability to understand what the Palestinians want to happen. I don't understand anymore what the road to peace looks like. I, I know that my friends and my community and my family who have advocated for so long for peace and two states are feeling very hopeless right now and a lot of anger and a lot of sadness. Um, so maybe in a month or two or maybe in a year, I'll have a better answer for what it could look like. But right now, I just want my people to be safe. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated it. You gave a great perspective. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beach Weekly. And a special thank you to our editor, Julia Goldman, and our producers, Elle Nicklin and Aiden Swanepoel. As always, if you want to read up on some of the stories covered today, along with so much more, you can head over to our website, daily49er.com. To make sure you're up to date with everything that happens on the Long Beach State Campus, you can follow our socials at Daily49er. We appreciate you listening, and you'll hear from me again next week.